Dear friends, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 8. If you are using the Pew Bible, which is under your chair, you can find this on page 916. As we come to Acts chapter 8, we're going to be looking together at verses 9 through 17. But before we read the Scripture, let's ask the Lord's help. Let's turn to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come again to ask of You, praising You that You have revealed Yourself in Your Word, but specifically requesting that as we read Your Word, that You might shine Your light upon the truth and help us to understand it and take it to heart. Lord, use the very Word of God to be that great tool of sanctification in conforming us to the image of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Word of the Lord? Again, Acts chapter 8, and I'm going to be reading from verse 9 to 17. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Thus far, the Word of God, and may He bless His Word to our hearts. Brethren, please be seated. Last week as we came to Acts chapter 8, we read of a massive moment in the history of salvation, the kingdom of God advancing into new territory. And we had seen in Jesus' ministry as He did scattered miracles in places beyond the enclaves of the Jews, he yet told his apostles that they would see the power of the Holy Spirit carrying the gospel beyond Jerusalem. The first stage of gospel growth was the word of Christ spreading into the greater regions of Judea and into Samaria. Now we remember that horrible circumstances drove the gospel from Jerusalem, Stephen's martyrdom and Saul's ravaging of the church. And yet the Lord used this persecution to force the gospel into new regions. And people went gossiping the gospel, as we saw last week. We also read of Philip at the city of Samaria, preaching Christ and performing miracles. And such was the power of God that demons fled and disease was overcome and deliverance was coming to souls, producing much joy in the people. But now Luke is going to zoom in on this situation in Samaria, showing us 
former allegiances, new faith, a phony disciple, and the spirit falling on the Samaritans. Now the scene here is going to raise some significant and controversial theological matters. We'll come to that in due time. But the crucial thing to see is that Christ's kingly plan is coming to pass. Psalm 2 prophesied that upon the completion of Jesus' saving work and His ascension into heaven, He was to ask of the Father for the inheritance of the nations, and they would be given to Him. Well, so they are, brethren. And how is it that the nations would be changed and commit themselves to Christ? Well, the Father would give the promise Holy Spirit to the reigning Christ, and King Jesus would pour out the Spirit on the church. That outpouring inevitably leads to gospel growth. And that's what we're seeing in our text. Now, the larger section we're looking at, uh, we're only taking the first part. All of this, down even to verse 25 of chapter 8, will focus us on Simon. But just through verse 17 this morning, and we're going to see three things. We begin with counterfeit power in verses 9 through 11. Counterfeit power. After telling us of Philip's sermons and signs and the abounding joy in the city, Luke turns our attention to a man named Simon and the stuff he was doing in the city of Samaria. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Now we're going to hear a lot about Simon this morning and next week about his pride and the people's response to him. It certainly won't all be encouraging because Simon is going to prove to be a fraud. In fact, several early church fathers will declare this Simon to be the source of heresy that spreads into the church over the next 150 years, causing all kinds of trouble. Luke isn't telling you that part of the story. His intention is to show you the hold Simon's magic had on the people of Samaria. Now, the magic we're talking about here is not card tricks and sleight of hand appearance or disappearances with coins or what have you. This magic is supernatural in nature. We would probably call it black magic. Simon practiced his magic and he amazed the people. What exactly amazed them? Well, in contrast to Philip's signs, casting out demons and doing healing, Simon had also been performing miraculous signs. Now, we're not told here what these signs were, but we are told that they captivated the people. Verse 10, they all, the people of Samaria, paid attention to Simon. And note the parallel language in verse 10 to back up to verse 6. When Philip came to Samaria, the crowds with one accord paid attention to, same verb, what was being said by Philip. We have what we might call here a power encounter. A power encounter. Before Philip came, Simon was the big man on campus. He was praised for his power. And notice that that praise was directed to him personally. Whereas Philip came preaching Christ, his message was all about Jesus 
Jesus' person, Jesus' work, the way you can be saved through Jesus, even the signs pointed to Jesus' power. Simon did wonders to have everybody look at him. For as he amazed the people with his magic, the message that he proclaimed, verse 9, was that he himself was somebody great. This is not a guy you'd want to be around. His magic served the end of self-exaltation. Look at how great I am. Now I ask you this, brethren. What supernatural power promotes the love of self? Or better, what supernatural being can perform wonders and nevertheless lead you away from the power of God? Who is that? It's the devil. And while the devil himself is self-centered and concerned for his own preeminence, he can be content with his power being praised in someone doing his will. Because what Satan wants is for folks to reject the one true God and his salvation in Jesus and to ascribe glory to created things, to call man great. And that's exactly what's happening here. As the people are captivated with Simon's magic, from the least to the greatest, they were saying, verse 10, this man is the power of God that is called great. They either called Simon a divine figure or they believed he is an agent of divine power. Now, of course, the power is not divine. It's inherently deceptive, not because it's phony, but because it leads you away from God. It leads you to worship not the true God, but man. It leads you to seek man before the Lord Himself. Now, this is similar to what we saw all the way back in the book of Exodus in Egypt when there was a God war between Yahweh and His representatives Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. Maybe you remember how Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh with a message and they said, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, all caps, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. How did Pharaoh respond? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And then he began giving orders saying, Thus says Pharaoh. Do you see the God war? Who's really God? Pharaoh is saying, I'm the real God here. I have the power. And it's surely no accident that the emblem of Egypt and its power is a what? A snake. That was Satan's stronghold. And then, as the confrontation continues, we have the Lord working wonders through Moses and Aaron, and we have counterfeit power. Not that it's fake, but it's not to the level of God. We have Pharaoh's magicians working wonders. I don't think, for instance, when Aaron threw down its staff, his staff, and it became a snake, and then the Pharaoh's magicians threw down their staffs that somebody just kind of kicked over uh, some snake charmer's baskets, and suddenly we had a bunch of critters crawling around. No, demonic power was at work in Egypt to keep people in bondage. Well, that is true here as well. Simon is performing demonically empowered signs, and it leads to people being captivated or ensnared in idolatry. The Samaritans were deceived, and the deception had been going on a long time. Look at verse 11. And they, the people of Samaria, paid attention to him, Simon, because for a long time 
He amazed them with His magic. Think of this situation in Samaria as Satan's outpost. This is the realm over which he has claimed dominion. Satan has marked his territory with these power displays through Simon to lock people up in darkness. But as the gospel of Jesus through Philip comes into the city, there's a new sheriff in town. Now, remember, we've recognized that this book is called Acts. Some say the long title is the Acts of the Apostles. I told you at the very start of this series, that's a long time ago, but it's really the Acts of the risen Christ working through His servants to spread the Word. And here a servant of Jesus has come, Philip, a guy who has no prominence in himself in a worldly sense. He isn't great to the eyes of the world. He was recognized as a gifted man in the church. He was marked out to be a servant of widows. Now, no disrespect to the widows among us, but in the ancient world, widows were at the very bottom of the social scale. And if you're a servant of widows, then what are you really? Nobody. You're nothing in the eyes of the world, but do you see what God is doing? He's choosing the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He empowers a servant of widows to perform wonders and show that the man being called great isn't great. The great one is Jesus. And King Jesus is moving into this new territory and kicking the devil to the curb. King Jesus is proving, just as He did in His own ministry, that Satan can't hold his ground. Satan boasts that he is the ruler of this world. It's actually a title Jesus will use himself. In John 12, as Jesus eyes the death that he will suffer in his resurrection, he says, John 12, 31, now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And when I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Well, what we're seeing in Samaria, brethren, is Christ's plan coming to pass. Jesus is drawing all all people, that is all kinds of people, not just the Jews, but now Samaritans to Himself. Jesus is bursting into this demonic outpost and plucking sinners from Satan's grip. Jesus is unveiling the counterfeit power here and causing chains of satanic bondage to shatter. Do you see what's going on? Philip is showing us the power of the Gospel of Christ. Brethren, such is the might of the preached Word that it can rip sinners from Satan's hold. Folks can be enamored with with what is false for a long time, even calling men gods. And then suddenly the counterfeit is revealed for what it really is, a lie. Luke is teaching us here the might of our King, Jesus Christ, to move into enemy-occupied territory and gain a victory. Remember how Jesus talks about the advance of the Gospel in Matthew 16? That He will build His church. Can you quote this verse? And the gates of hell can't stand against it or won't overcome it. Gates are stationary things. It means the Gospel is advancing and conquering what is stationary. That's what's happening here. There's a stronghold in Samaria. And the Gospel is blowing the doors off the gates of hell. Shouldn't this give us tremendous encouragement 
as we recognize that this is what has happened with us. The gospel has spread to where we are, where we live, and saved our souls, and we've been plucked from Satan's grip and brought into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And shouldn't it give us encouragement as we see our missionaries carry the gospel into dark places like the mountains of Peru where animism abounds, or the plains of Kenya where ancestor worship and witch doctors abound, or the metropolis of a place like Duras, Albania, or Kampalampur, Malaysia, where dark Islam holds sway. And we have men like Santos Bundia and Jackson Taylor and Greg Bilesma and Bertie Kona and all of their weakness speak the gospel of Christ and what happens? Light comes. We're being told that there's going to be gospel success, not because men are great. They're not great, but the message is great. Christ is great. And He's causing His Word to spread rapidly and be glorified. And yet, before we get into all the details of Christ's overcoming power here, which liberates from darkness, do you see the devil's aim? Satan aims to keep people deluded. And in order to maintain his spell of darkness, he isn't just equipped with falsehoods. He has power. Yes, Jesus has defeated him who held the power of death. That is the devil. Yes, Jesus has bound the strong man, throwing the devil down so that Satan's power is curtailed. But do not underestimate the power of the devil. Satan is real and Satan is busy. And I know we live in an anti-supernatural age where everything is explained away with some type of scientific language. But Satan, according to Scripture, is using supernatural power. Well, thank God Christianity is a supernatural religion. And King Jesus has done a supernatural thing. And He is causing His Word to advance in the face of what appears to be powerful, but doesn't have the power to stand against Jesus Christ. Paul will speak in 2 Thessalonians 2 of a day when the man of lawlessness, or the Antichrist, will use signs, miracles, and wonders to deceive. And that's a scary thing. But what's the comfort? One little word will fell him. Just with a word, Christ can overcome. Brother, be encouraged as you see this passage. Secondly, see with me. Conversions, conversion of souls. Previously, the people of Samaria were amazed by Simon and they praised him. But now a change occurs. Verse 12, but when they believed Philip, and note what they believed, they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus. Yes, Philip was doing signs, and the signs garnered attention, but the signs didn't prompt the people to believe. They believed when they heard the good news about the kingdom of God. Now, what is the good news of the kingdom? Maybe you remember the biblical language from Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That imagery has a significant background. It's used of a runner of a messenger from the battlefield to carry news of the battle. And it's good news if the king won a victory. In fact, to bear the good news is to carry the good word 
of the king's triumph. Well, Christ came announcing the good news, the gospel, namely that he is king and he's driving out the devil. He comes with healing in his wings. He comes with garments of salvation, removing our sin, gifting us righteousness. He comes to reconcile us to God and establish peace and promote our joy. So as Philip preaches the good news of the kingdom, what is he doing? Well, he's explaining God has a kingdom, Christ is the king, and by virtue of King Jesus' death and resurrection, his ascension, his throne at the right hand of God the Father, to him, to Christ, go all authority, power, and dominion. You must bow down to him who is the Lord and King. And then Philip says, or we're told Philip was preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And you remember in the Old Testament, perhaps, that there are numerous statements about placing one's trust in the name of the Lord or praising the name of the Lord or calling on the name of the Lord. In fact, that's what Peter quoted from Joel 2 back at Pentecost. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The name of the Lord represents everything that He is and all in His character and all that He's done. Further, speaking of the name of the Lord heightens that His name is above every name and He alone has the power to save. So as Philip is preaching the name of Jesus, it doesn't mean he just said in his sermon, Jesus, 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 Jesus. No, he's saying Jesus is the exalted name. Jesus is Himself full of a divine status. He's Almighty God. He's the one with power to rescue your soul. Philip was preaching Jesus' name to save, and that is a prevailing name. At the name of Jesus, demons flee. At the name of Jesus, there is forgiveness for the sinner and a refuge. Through Jesus' name, there's a way to God and grace upon grace. Oh, what a name. Remember how John Newton writes to this? He has a wonderful hymn. Might be my favorite, 647. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. It makes the wounded spirit whole and calms the troubled breast. Tis manna to the hungry soul and to the weary rest. Have you found rest in the name of Jesus? Are you comforted? Are you encouraged? Are you given stability? Because you come in the name of Jesus. He preached the kingdom of God. He preached the name of Jesus. And friends, people were converted. Luke reports, both men and women believed Philip's words about the kingdom of God, about the name of Christ, and they were baptized. Now, if you've been paying attention in the last, I don't know, four years as we've walked through Luke and now we're walking through Acts, he keeps bringing up women. It's everywhere in Luke's gospel. He, he emphasizes this, and we see it again here. Luke is highlighting that the saving grace of Jesus is equally shared by those the first century culture despised. Women are partaking. You couldn't be a disciple in a Jewish context if you were a woman. But now you're ushered into the very presence of Christ. We are no longer strangers and aliens is the idea. We're brought into the commonwealth of Israel, brought near by the blood of Jesus and given all of His benefits. These 
Samaritans. Remember Jesus' attitude to the Samaritans? These Samaritans are seeing the awakening power of the Spirit and they're putting their trust in Jesus. And how are they doing that? Well, as Sinclair Ferguson taught us this morning, and I didn't watch the video before I prepared this sermon, but there's some parallels. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, born from above, born of the Spirit. The Spirit is giving new birth. What is the means the Spirit is using to give new birth? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. As Philip preached that Christ was king, eyes were open, hearts were changed, people rested in Christ and gave their allegiance to Christ in their baptism. Now, brethren, as we read of this converting power, again, just look and see what God is doing as He's rescuing sinners and see the weak and foolish means that God chooses to pluck sinners from Satan's grip. He uses, and I'm using Paul's words, the foolishness of what is preached. Isn't it amazing that God is saving people by having some guy stand up and talk to you for quite some time? about Jesus Christ. And then, boom, the Spirit comes with power and awakens your soul. So that you look up to the Son. You put your trust in Him, who, the One who suffered and died in your place, who lived a perfect life to substitute for your rebellion, who rose in power and established your peace. You rest in Him. Well, are you resting in Him? Are you delivered from sin? Have you believed the preached message about the name of Jesus? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ and then trumpeted your allegiance by baptism? If you haven't, come to the One who can save. But if you have trusted in Christ, don't boast in your intellect or your wisdom and certainly not in your righteousness. Boast in the King who sought you and bought you with His own precious blood. And yet, Simon is again singled out as one, verse 13, who believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. On the face of it, it appears as if this servant of the devil now gives his loyalty to a new master. However, something said here should make you suspicious. While the men and women of Samaria were said to have believed Philip as he preached the good news concerning the kingdom of God and Jesus' name, of Simon we read, verse 13, did you notice? that seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. What's missing there? Well, what's missing is there's no statement of explicit faith in Jesus Christ. Simon is impressed by wonders. But we know in Jesus' ministry, there were many people in Capernaum, Chorazin, Nazareth, and Jerusalem who saw signs and were amazed, but never repented never called on Jesus as Lord. Again, the language here should make you suspicious of Simon. And we'll discover in more detail next week that Simon isn't converted. These words should be a warning to us. You can appear to believe. You can receive baptism, but have no genuine faith in Christ as Lord. Faith that Christ can do miracles it's not saving faith. Faith that supernatural things are happening through Jesus is not saving faith. 
if I can put it this way, a willingness to get wet for Jesus does not mean necessarily that you're converted. Baptism doesn't save. Miracles do not save. Christ saves. And you must have a personal trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you. Is that what we have? Can we say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Brethren, is Jesus our Lord? Do we deny ourselves and follow Him in every respect? May we have a real and not a spurious faith. But then finally see with me a connection to Pentecost. News of the Gentiles, or Samaritans in this case, getting converted. News gets back to the apostles at Jerusalem, so they send Peter and John. But the apostolic delegation is not sent because they doubt the genuineness of the work. There's nothing here to indicate that Philip's preaching is deficient and we need to come you know, help a brother out. This isn't done when the gospel is initially gossiped into all the regions of Judea. So it begs the question, why here when this wasn't done in other places? Something seems unique as the gospel goes into Samaria. Indeed, this whole situation seems to be establishing a connection between what happened as the Spirit came at Pentecost and now as the work of the gospel spreads through the apostles' leadership. As we read of the situation, things are strange. Look at verse 15. Peter and John prayed for them, the Samaritans, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet, strange, he had not yet fallen on them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This ought to strike you as odd. Why is it odd? Well, it's true during the ministry of Jesus before the cross, Peter and John had believed in Jesus and been baptized, but they had not yet received the Spirit. Jesus had not yet been glorified. John 7 will say the Spirit has therefore not yet been given. But when they did receive the Spirit at Pentecost, that was a unique, once-for-all-time moment. The risen Christ is revealing God's promise is fulfilled. The Son has been given the Spirit, and He pours out the Spirit as the reigning Christ. He pours out the agent of new life, and now there is power to reverse the curse. However, when Peter started preaching the gospel at Pentecost, he didn't separate faith in Jesus from baptism in the Spirit. He said, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. In other words, the moment the 3,000 believed in Jesus as Lord, they received the Spirit. That happens again for the 2,000 who repented and believed in Acts 4. It happens again for the unnumbered folks of people converted in Acts 5. The normal pattern that we've seen in Acts is believe in Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit comes at the same time. But here in Samaria, there is a two-stage work of the Spirit. The Spirit regenerates, makes alive with Christ, and then later, when Peter and John come, the Spirit falls on the Samaritans. What are we to think of this? Is what happened in Samaria a new normal? Or is this an exception? 
is the Spirit received in a two-tiered manner, conversion to Christ, and then later a baptism of the Spirit. Well, brethren, if you'll pardon me for a few moments, this is a very controversial matter. And it has produced scores of people claiming Christ is Lord while holding to a two-tiered blessing of the Spirit. On the one hand, there are Roman Catholics, Anglo-Catholics, and Episcopalians who argue for a two-tiered work of the Spirit. Some of you who've grown up Methodist as I did, you'll hear some similarities here too. They say things like, the Spirit comes in baptism, which is a view, by the way, that Baptism brings new birth. We've already seen that is not the case because Simon baptized, not converted. But having been so-called born again at baptism, later on in life, the bishop comes, who's a successor of the apostles, so it said, and he confirms something called confirmation. And then by the laying on of hands of the bishop, there is a second gift of the Spirit. Then secondly, there are those who are Pentecostal or Charismatic or even Methodists and Baptists and Presbyterians with Charismatic leanings who argue that Christians should seek a second blessing of the Spirit. And they distinguish between conversion and being baptized with the Spirit. The arguments here are multifaceted. Some argue that This distinct baptism in the Spirit gives you new gifts, like tongues. Or they argue you can enter into a new phase of spiritual life, a higher life, a new realm of sanctification. Some even claim, and I promise I'm not making this up, once you've fully surrendered to Jesus and you receive the Spirit's fullness and a second blessing, you won't sin anymore. Have you you met people like this who tell you that they've stopped sinning? Back away. I don't have time to slice and dice all these views to expose the folly particularly of the higher life movement or or the claim that the proof that you have the baptism of the Spirit is that you speak in tongues. Did you notice, by the way, that no one is speaking in tongues in this passage? What I do want to emphasize is that these groups of professing Christians who claim a two-tiered work of the Spirit as ordinary are totally off base. They look at Pentecost and its echoes in Samaria and among the Gentiles in a faulty way. They fail to see that Pentecost is totally unique. Jesus as the risen Lord pours out the Spirit once and for all time. It's a new era of salvation history. It's a moment of fulfillment that we've entered the Messianic age, that the curse is being overturned. But as the Gospel goes beyond Jerusalem to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, the Gentile world, the Lord uniquely confirms to the apostles that this is the same Spirit that came on you who's coming on the non-Jews. You know, interestingly, as we keep reading Acts, Peter is going to be involved in both of these events. He watches the Spirit come upon the Samaritans here, and in chapter 10, he'll watch the Spirit fall on the Gentiles. And then Peter will report in Acts 11, 
God gave the gift of the Spirit to the Gentiles just as He gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus. In other words, the reason for this strange separation of conversion, you can't be converted without the power of the Holy Spirit, and then the Spirit falling with the apostles watching, is to show, hear this, is to show Jewish Christians that the old lines of separation between Jew and Samaritan are over. The gospel destroys the separation. For centuries, the Samaritans have been separated from the true faith. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, you worship what you do not know. That's quite confrontational. You are an idolater. You're ignorant of the true faith. But now as the gospel goes to the realm of Samaria and they're evangelized, the question will be, will this separation hold between Jew and Samaritans? We read that Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. Jews don't interact with Samaritans. Jesus' disciples were really surprised that Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. Well, is there now going to be a great rift in the church? Will there be two churches? Will there be a dividing wall of hostility that rises between Jew and Samaritan and Gentile? Will the Samaritans start their own thing and kind of thumb their nose at the apostles? The answer to all these questions is no. No, 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 and no. There is, as we confess, and we said it this morning on purpose, one holy Catholic, and that's not Roman Catholic, because if you say Roman Catholic, it's no longer universal. You've limited it already. There is one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and that church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ as the cornerstone. Brother, what is happening here is amazing. King Jesus is shining His neon light on something for the apostles, showing them that they are attached to these Samaritan believers because there is one body, one church, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. The Spirit is showing them that there's unity in the church. Yes, the gospel is going into a new region and no doubt encountering new difficulties. But it's the same gospel, the same spirit, the same Lord to whom we all give allegiance. We are through faith ushered into one household of God. And this is meant to show you and me the unity of the church. There are not second class Christians. Those Christians who don't have the Spirit or those Christians who have Jesus as Savior but not as Lord. No! The uniqueness here simply reinforces the point. See the Samaritan share in the Spirit. They're connected to you. And brethren, this is the great glory of the gospel, that we are attached to one another. We're here this morning, and we're a weird bunch. We have, well, weird for all kinds of reasons. Let me mention these. We come from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds. We may be separated from one another by native language, by customs, by various historic beliefs. But as we come together, we who are so different in culture, in color, and in language, because we have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are united in Jesus Christ. What a glorious truth that is. 
the fountain of living waters, Jesus Christ, has poured out His Spirit. And as the work of the Gospel is spilling into new places, it's like we're all linked up to the water system, to use the, the analogy used in Sunday school this morning. The water system's already there. King Jesus is overflowing with His Gospel blessings and we're brought in. And we are in Christ. We all are indwelt by the Spirit. Brethren, do we see our unity with the people of God? That's what's being emphasized. In Christ, we are one. So what? That has to affect everything about you as a Christian. That we are attached to one another. And we have a deep affection for one another. We have a tighter bond because of union with Christ than we have with people who are our siblings. What does this matter for you? It means you are to look at one another as a fellow heir of the grace of life and to love one another and encourage one another and walk side by side in the things of the gospel and to stand firm together against the attacks of the devil. And you will have success because the gospel is going out in great power. May we not get off on a wrong foot with a misunderstanding of what's happening in this passage. May we see the great unity God is bringing in His triumph through Jesus Christ. Brethren, let's pray together. O Lord our God, we bow before You in awe of Your marvelous plan that while the devil aims to oppose everything that You do, he is a defeated enemy, a lion without fangs. Lord, we pray that with trust in Christ we would rest confidently that Jesus' Gospel will go forward. And while there is opposition and while there is struggle, we know that there will be conversion as You bring Your people, people from every nation, tongue, and tribe to Yourself. Lord, may we see the great work You are doing and may we experience that great work even among us as a local body that we would enjoy the unity and the mutual love we share in Christ our Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen.